Luke 1, verse 46 to 55. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. This is God's word. Thank you, Magda, for leading us in prayer and, and scripture reading. And in that prayer, uh, you actually reminded me of something I was supposed to mention to everybody. Yeah, next Sunday is our uh, church Christmas party. And we're not exactly sure where we're going to host it. It's somewhat dependent upon how many people come. So if you could RSVP to Megan, office at gracevalleychurch.ca, and let her know if you're coming soon, then we can either decide if we're going to have it at Jeff and Jackie's house or if we're going to have it here in this space. And remember, this is something to bring friends and neighbors to as well. It's just a party. It's laid back. It's a great place for you to introduce some of your uh, friends and neighbors to Grace Valley Church. So uh, let Megan know uh, what's going on there. Also, uh, just a reminder that... Um, if we have time at the end of the, the message, we also uh, take opportunity to uh, receive, I, I'll take questions from the congregation. Uh, if you have any questions about the message for clarification, for example, you'll be able to ask them. So, uh, you know, if you have a pen or if you're just thinking about um, the message as we go through it, uh, keep that in mind. If you don't want to raise your hand to ask your question, but you'd prefer... Uh, to ask it over text, my phone number's in the bulletin, you can text me that question and we'll look at it. And there is a, a, an outline, uh, a bit of a roadmap of the message on the back of the bulletin for you. So we are in Advent, we already learned last week that, uh, that uh, we've been in Advent, in Advent longer than everybody else. Um, because we started a week early, that was my fault, but that's okay. Uh, we still finish Advent around the same time as everybody, we just get one more week of it. Uh, so we love Christmas more than everybody else does. Anyhow, uh, I'm still bearing shame over that mistake, but uh, I'm preaching the gospel to myself, so I'm sure that I will get over it eventually. Advent, what does it mean? It means appearing, right? And in Advent, what we do is, is we look back and we look forward. So we look back to the first appearing of Jesus as the Son of God born to the Virgin Mary, and we also look forward together to the second appearing of Jesus when he returns at the end of time to finally usher in the new heavens and the new earth, the new creation, as it were, where we, where we will finally live with him in person, in the flesh, on this earth 
without all the garbage that the earth deals with now, without all the sin and without all the, the, uh, without all the evil that we experience uh, at present. And over the next few weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to focus our attention on, on what are sometimes called the songs of Advent. So these are songs that are contained in the first chapters of Luke in particular uh, that are spoken or or sung by various characters connected to the first coming of Jesus. And so next week, we're going to look at the song of Zechariah, and then uh, on Christmas or Christmas Eve, we'll look at the song of the angels that they sung to the shepherds, and then um, December 31st, we're actually going to look at the song of Simeon, uh, who uh, met Jesus as he was a baby in the temple. But this morning, we're looking at the psalm we just read, the song we just read, which is Mary's song. It's also called the Magnificat. And the Magnificat is called that simply because it's the Latin for the first word uh, or or the first line, my soul magnifies the Lord. And uh, this is one of the most famous texts in all of Scripture. There are There are people who know nothing much about the Bible at all, who know aspects of the Magnificat. It's sometimes described as the last psalm of the Bible. Sometimes it's described as the first Christmas carol in the Bible. It has been put to music more than almost every other passage in Scripture, and it's probably known, best known, uh, or known best as a passage of Scripture, second only to the Lord's Prayer. So this is a, a, a big important song. And why it's so famous, and what I hope to unpack for you this morning, is this. Mary's song, or the Magnificat, what it does is, is it articulates, it puts into words, it expresses humanity's amazement at Christmas. My hope this morning is, I mean, many of you have been through lots of Christmases now, and and the more you go through something, the more possible it is, anyway, for you to become less enthralled by or less amazed by that something because you've heard it all before, right? It starts to kind of get old hat. My hope is that this morning, when you leave here, you will leave more amazed at Christmas than you were when you came. I won't say more amazed at Christmas than you've ever been because I... I don't know how amazed you've ever been. Like, maybe you've been super amazed. But I do hope that you will leave more amazed than when you came. Like Mary was amazed. So we're going to look at three things. We're going to look at what amazed Mary. We're going to look at how she was amazed by God. And we've got to flip the sermon outline a bit because I, I changed it. Uh, how she was amazed by salvation or amazed by Christmas, and then how she was amazed by herself. And I hope that sounds weird to you because that was my goal when I came up with it. So let's look at these three, th- three things together. How Mary was amazed at God, amazed at salvation or Christmas itself, and how she is amazed at herself. Here we go. First thing. Mary is amazed by God. Why? And there's two things that amazes Mary about God that are expressed in this text. Well, one is more implied and the other is definitely expressed. you got to understand something. By the time the Gospels are written, so by the time you get to Luke chapter 1, the people of God, the people of Israel, are a complete and total disaster. They are a mess, okay? 
by this time, uh, they are living in a land where they are ruled by a foreign power. So Rome rules Israel instead of Israel ruling Israel. They have a king. They have King Herod, but he's a puppet king. And not only that, he's not even from the right line. He's not a Davidic king. He's from Esau. And if you know your Old Testament, Esau, you don't want to be associated with Esau. And so their king is from the line of Esau. Their priesthood is not from the line of Levi, which it was supposed to be. Instead, it's from all different lines because the priesthood has become a political uh, post. And so you can bribe your way into the priesthood to become a priest and, and become part of the priesthood. So it's not functioning the way it's supposed to either. They do have a temple that was rebuilt, but it's like super small. And they're living in, in complete disarray. And when they look back on the promises of the Old Testament about the glory that Israel was supposed to live under and experience, they're like, we're not even close to where we should be. So that's the first thing you need to remember. But the worst thing you need to remember, if I can put it that way, is that for the last 400 years, God has been silent. So between Malachi and Luke, so Malachi is the old, last book written in the Old Testament, Luke, first book, one of the first books written in the New Testament, that period of time, 400 years, okay, 16 generations, God has been completely silent. The people of God have not heard from Him at all. And so they're not really, they're starting to wonder, does God speak to His people at all anymore? Has God abandoned His people? Or has God said everything He was going to say in the Old Testament? And so the things that we might be looking for, we shouldn't be looking for because it's all been said and done. But now, here's what's happening. 400 years of silence. See, we can't even, I can't even get that. 400 years. What is 400 years to me? It could be 4,000 years. It's all really, really long, Right? At the end of this 400 years, God finally breaks his silence. And he breaks it in a huge way because he sends one of his angels, he sends Gabriel to speak to two different people within the span of six months. And his story, his message is this, the Messiah who you have been waiting so long for, you've been pining for this, this deliverer, he's finally on his way. In other words, the most important decades in human history are about to begin. Get ready. The course of history is about to change. And now, by the way, if you're here this morning and you're, maybe you're not a Christian, maybe you're visiting and you're curious about Christianity or you don't even know why you're here. Maybe you had a few hours to kill. I don't know. You're here. You're not a Christian. You hear me say that. The course of history, the three most important decades in history, and you think to yourself, well, come on, man, that, yeah, preacher guy, of course he's going to say that. But is that really true? That's actually, I'm not, that's not a disputed claim. In other words, you don't have to be a Christian to think that the life and ministry of Jesus of Nazareth was one of, if not the most important events in the historical record at least in the record of civilization. Jesus did something in his coming that no one else had done before or has done since. And in fact, historians, and this is religious historians, secular historians, everything in between, historians are constantly trying to figure it out. They're trying to, they're trying to make sense of how in the world that was possible. Why did this one individual's life have such an, an epic creating effect 
on history. Like, it, it's like, it's like imagining that the world is going through a certain orbit, right? And then an asteroid comes and it hits the world and then it, it actually changes the trajectory of the world so that it's on a different orbit. That's how massive the coming of Jesus is. And that's not something that, that just believers believe. That's something that, that people believe. The question is why? And you need to wrestle, that's what you need to wrestle with, why? Why could this one person have so much effect on all of human history? That's just kind of an aside. An important one, though. Anyhow, so God speaks, right? That's, that's the first thing that, that surprises Mary, that, that amazes Mary, that God actually speaks. But in speaking, what does he do? He reveals. He doesn't speak for no reason. He's got something to say. And what does he reveal? He reveals himself, his nature. This is what amazes Mary about God. You see, when we think about Christmas, all right, let's, let's be honest. When we think about the Christmas season and we think about Christmas time, we're very human-centered about it, right? Like we think of chestnuts roasting on an open fire, right? You know, uh, Jack Frost nipping at your nose. We think of, of trees bathed in candlelight and sitting around together, reading the night before Christmas and all snuggled up under the covers with a glass of hot, cup of hot chocolate or something like that. And I'm not saying any of that is bad, okay? I'm, I'm, you know, I'm all for it. Knock yourself out. But that's a very human-centered, if that's what you focus on at Christmas time, you're very, very human-centered. Mary is most amazed about God at Christmas time. She's revolutionized, revolutionized by what Christmas shows her about God, about his nature. And there's three things very quickly that I want to show you that she expresses in this passage. What does she learn about God? In verse 49, it says she, she learns that he is mighty. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. What, what was Mary told? What did Gabriel tell Mary? He told her, listen, you are going to become pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Or you're going to become pregnant and you are going to give birth to a boy who is the son of God. And what is Mary's response? I don't think so. Not going to happen. Impossible. In, in, in the Bible, the words are, how could this be? Why did Mary respond that way? Because Mary understands how, where babies come from. She understands how it works, and she says, wait a minute, that can't be, that can't happen, because that hasn't happened, and therefore that can't happen. Look, modern people are constantly reading the, the, the gospel stories, and they're like, oh, poor naive Mary, you know, you know, she was duped into thinking this crazy thing about herself, and, or they wrote this story to convince all of us that, that uh, you know, that... They, they, they wrote this story later and they stuck it in the Bible to convince all of us that these people really believe that Jesus is God and stuff like that. And they're just so easily understood. We're modern people. We're scientific people. We know how things really work. Mary knew how things really work. They made Mary go, uh, no, that can't be. And what is Gabriel's response? He says, well, the Holy Spirit is actually going to conceive this child in your womb. And remember, Mary, nothing is impossible with God. And so then Mary takes this story and she goes, wow, well, 
If that's how it's going to be, that's going to how it's going to be. It doesn't mean she's fully convinced. But when she meets Elizabeth, her cousin, Elizabeth, who's also pregnant pretty miraculously, we'll talk about that next week, the baby inside of her leaps for joy because John the Baptist, who's in Elizabeth, knows that Jesus is in Mary and he's already excited about it. And that's, what Mary, that's when Mary goes, whoa. Nothing is impossible with God. It's true. He's doing what he said he would do. God is mighty. God is all-powerful. God can do whatever he wants. That's the first thing she realizes. The second thing she expresses is there in verse 49 as well. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. She realizes, she learns, she understands, she sees, she discovers. I don't know how you want to put it, any way you want to put it, that God is holy. Now, we've talked about holiness here for a bunch of times, and, and there's, there's different ways to describing it. This morning, understand this. The holiness of God means that God is absolutely and utterly and completely opposed to sin. He never gets used to it because his nature is, is diametrically opposed to it. it it's, like, it's like his nature, you know, the Bible says God is a, a consuming fire. His nature is acidic towards sin and evil. When it comes into contact with sin and evil, God's nature actually, it actually corrodes it. It actually destroys it or as a fire consumes it and tears it up. God is holy and pure and glorious and without sin and he is utterly and completely and totally opposed to sin. And Mary sees this, that somehow God is coming to deal with sin and guilt. In verse 47, she says, my, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. This is religious language in the Bible. When God came to save, he came to rescue. He came to free you. He came to get you out. He came to release you. He came to deal with whatever it was that was, that was holding you in bondage. And only a sinner was a person who needed a Savior. And Mary's admitting, I'm a, I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. She doesn't know about the cross yet. She doesn't understand how God is going to deal with sin. She just knows that he has to. And then it becomes personal. Do you, do you understand that Christmas expresses the holiness of God? When you pull out your nativity scene, okay, how many people, you don't have to tell me. I'm cur- I am curious how many people have a crash or a nativity set up at their house. Lots of us do, right? I mean, we have like seven, I think. Um, you know, we got Playmobil ones, we got wood ones, we got them all over the place. But you look at that little baby. You look at that little baby in that nativity scene. Do you look at that baby and think, he has business with me. He has come in his holiness to deal with sin. You see, the fact that God is holy and that Christmas is about God's holiness means that Christmas is personal. It means that Christmas is about God coming to deal with you. He has business with you. If you don't realize that, then then the story of Christmas is a neat story about back then, but it doesn't really have much to do with right now. Mary saw the holiness of God. She was amazed by it. Third thing, though, she also was amazed by the mercy of God. You know, 
holiness of God, mightiness of God. Put those two things together, ah, Christmas is scary, right? You got to have this third thing, this mercy of God. Look at verse 50. In in verse 50, it says, his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Mercy is God expressing himself in such a way where he does not give you according to what you deserve. He gives you the opposite of what you deserve. Yes, God has come to deal with sin in his holiness. Yes, God is almighty, meaning he can deal with with sin and he can deal with it in power, but his mercy means that he will not deal with it the way that you and I deserve. Like imagine, here's a company, okay? Here's a company that has been losing money, it's been bleeding profits forever and ever, it's not well run, it's doing poorly, etc. And some other company comes along, they do a leveraged buyout and they take over the, the failing company. And they open the books and they look at how it's being done and they say, this thing is being run terribly. This is a horribly run company. There's all kinds of waste. There's all kinds of, of overhead that it, that's not required, etc. And what do they do? They start making cuts, right? Heads are going to roll. They're fired, they're fired, they're fired. We're getting rid of that line. We don't need that development, blah, blah, blah. And they, they streamline it and they make all these cuts. They slash and burn. You hear about that all the time, right? And they have the right to do that because they're trying to turn that company around. Well, here's the world. And it doesn't run right. It's a disaster. And you and I are why. And God has every right to say heads are going to roll. But in his mercy, he says, I will turn things around, but I will cut off sin without cutting off you. She was amazed by the nature of God. And she was amazed by Christmas or by salvation. This is point number two. She was amazed by Christmas. Look at verses 51 through 53. In those verses, what are recorded for us is a series of what you could call surprises. Mary is surprised by a number of things. She she says that, that God is scattering the proud The mighty are being torn down. The rich are being left empty. So the proud, the mighty, the rich, they're they're out. And then she describes who's in. It's the lowly, it's the humble, it's the poor. This is unexpected, okay? This is not the way things are are meant to work. Things are are meant to, to, to work to the advantage of the strong. Things are meant to work to the advantage of the hardworking or of the educated or of the, of the bright. And God is coming into this world and he's saying, I am here to raise up the humble, to provide for the poor, to bless the lowly. If you're proud, you're out. If you're humble, you're in. Why is that? Think about it. Here's proud, here's humble. What's the difference between them? Proud person, we would all say, well, a proud person says... I deserve this. You know, I'm, I'm hardworking. I'm a pretty good person. I try my best. I take care of my family. I, I stay out of trouble. I keep my nose clean. I, I do things right as best I can. And therefore, I deserve God's blessing and God's favor. Whereas the humble is someone who says, you know, no matter how hard I try, no matter how good I am, no matter how hardworking, no matter how... Uh, 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 kind and compassionate, etc. I really, I don't deserve it. I don't have it all together. I'm not worthy of God's glory. I'm not worthy of God's mercy. I don't deserve it. 
Or how about the rich versus the poor? Now understand something, it's not a sin to be rich. In fact, even in this passage, in verse 55, Mary, uh, Mary uh, uh, mentions Abraham, who uh, is the father of the, the, the covenant people of God, and was actually, by the standards of his day anyway, a very wealthy man. So wealth in itself is not the problem. The problem is, is, is when wealth, when the rich believe that, that their, their success is proof of their success and proof of their worth, that's the problem. See, in our culture, let's face it, the poor are constantly being told, look, you, you don't really matter. You're not that important. You're uneducated. You got a bad home life. You got a bad pedigree, maybe. You can't provide for your kids very well. You're a failure. Ah, but here's a rich person. Drives a nice car, got a nice house, got nice 1.8 children, because we don't have replacement rate anymore. Got... A nice business, got nice employees, and we say, well, that person, they got it together. That person, that person matters. That person is important, and that person deserves to be looked upon with respect, not just by us, but by God, too. And God comes along, and he says, your pedigree doesn't mean anything. Your riches, your success, your accolades, the number of degrees you have and diplomas you have on the wall, with respect to me, that means nothing. And frankly, that is weird, guys. Look, this is how it works. This is how your head works. I know this is how your head works because this is how my head works, and this is how your heart works. And I know it because this is how my heart works. You've done this. wealthy person. Their wealth is proof of their success. And their proof of their success is proof that they've got it together. And because they've got it together, they are therefore a good person. And because they are a good person, they are therefore deserving of God's favor, at least deserving of mine. And here in this text, what is Mary saying? She's saying, you think that way, you're out. You'll never be amazed by Christmas. If you want to be amazed by Christmas, you've got to see that God comes to those who are poor in spirit, not poor in wealth. A rich person can be just as humble as a poor person. Don't get me wrong. But the difference that Mary is describing for us is a one of attitude and relationship with God. And she's saying that God comes to those who are poor in spirit. She's anticipating the Beatitudes, if you know what that is. If you don't, read Matthew 5 when you leave today. You'll discover them. See, Mary is singing about the incredibly unique gospel of grace where you don't have it all together. You're, you're a disaster. You're a disaster maybe financially, emotionally, sexually, psychologically, relationally, socially, maybe you're an absolute complete disaster and the God love and his grace on you and you say, you look at him and you say, I am nothing and he says, to me, you're everything. And you say, that's nuts. If you don't say that's nuts, you don't get it. You're not amazed by Christmas. I'm sort of bleeding into the third point. That's okay though. Let's go there now. She's amazed by herself. And what do I mean by that? That's, Provocative language, right? 
You're not, we're not supposed to be amazed by ourselves. Christians learn that very young. You know, don't boast in yourself. Don't be proud of yourself. And, and when you read verse 48, it almost sounds like that's Mary. He has looked on the humble estate of his servant for behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. She is not, however, expressing arrogance and sounding kind of proud. In fact, she's doing the exact opposite. When she says, has looked on my humble estate, she's doing the very thing we were just talking about. She's, she's admitting her low status. She's admitting her insignificance. Look, by cultural standards of the day, Mary was an absolute nobody. And she knew that. Sorry, ladies, but in that culture, if you were a woman you had very little status. If you were an unwed woman, you had even less. If you were an unwed and pregnant woman, you had none. You were an outcast. You were the forgotten. And even after she does, Joseph, awesome guy, he marries her. And even after they get married, they have Jesus and they bring him to the temple to uh, present him there. And what do they bring? They bring two little birdies because they're so dirt poor, they can't afford a half-decent sacrifice. Mary understands that she is completely on the out. And yet, this is what astounds her. This mighty, holy, merciful God, out of all the people that she could have, he could have chosen, he comes in and he chose her, little old her, to be the mother of the Savior of the world. That's why she says in verse 48 or 46, she says, um, my soul magnifies and my spirit rejoices. She's, she says the same thing over and over again because the penny has dropped and she's just bursting form, forth with this incredible joy because God chose her. He sought her out. He found her. He picked her, a complete nobody. And I, you know, I was racking my brain. Okay, what, what can drive this home to us? Here's the best I got. Some of you maybe will not connect to this. Some of you might. So Justin Bieber. Obviously, we're going to talk about Justin Bieber. So Justin Bieber, he's, I mean, he's not as famous as he was, but like five, seven years ago, I mean, he was the man. And he would sell out concert after concert, and the primary concert goer, Justin Bieber concert goer, was a preteen or teen girl, okay? These are... Young girls in the most sort of, no offense girls, okay, but this is the most self-absorbed and insecure time of your life. And you are going to a Justin Bieber concert. And by the way, be glad. It's the worst. You're going to come out of it, okay, by God's grace. And boys, you're, you're just as bad, so don't laugh at the girls. Maybe worse in your own way, but I, I don't have time to get into that. Um, so you go to these concerts, okay, and Justin Bieber would sing in, and, and, and it's just like with the Beatles. Like, it's the same kind of thing. You know, these, these girls would see them, and they're like, ah, he's so awesome, and I love him so much. And, Justin, Justin, you know, they're holding up their placards, trying to get his attention and all that kind of stuff. And this is what he would do every concert. He would pick one girl out of a sea of 20,000. And he would bring her up on stage and he would sit her down on a stool right in the center of the stage and he would give her a rose and then he would sing this song. I don't even know the song. One Less Lonely Girl. Anybody know that song? Okay. No one wants to admit it, but you all <laughs> sing it. Anyhow, 
So he would sing this song, One Less Lonely Girl, and there would be one spotlight. It would be dark, and it would be one spotlight on him and this girl as he sang this song. And this girl, she would just be trembling, probably with fear and, and whatever, but also just she was like her jaw would go open and she, her eyes would bug out. She'd just be astounded that he chose her. And for that one moment, she felt... I don't know what she felt, because I've never been there, but she felt, she felt astoundingly special and cherished. Remember, most insecure time of your life, and in that moment, you've got this security, like, me? You're singing this song to me? Now listen, are you a Christian? When I ask you that, what I mean is, do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he came into this world to deal with your sin, that he went to a cross and bore God's just punishment for your sin on your behalf? Do you believe that? Now, if you do, my next question for you is this. Are you amazed by that? Are you just gobsmacked by that? Do you tremble with amazement at that? See, every real Christian is like Mary. You know, maybe you don't get it at first, but when you look back, you realize deep in your soul, you're like, my faith, me being a Christian, this wasn't something I decided on. There, there was something, a power from outside that, that that came and decided upon me, it, it intervened. And it shook me to the core, to my very foundations. And, and I realized, I didn't pick you. You picked me. And so a Christian should always be walking around with this dazed, well, we can't be dazed because we'll run into stuff, but this sense of, of awe and wonder and amazement at the fact that God picked us. When you go there, some of you, when you go there, what you want to do is you want to you think about, well, God, yeah, he picked me, but he didn't pick my friend or he didn't pick my, my brother or my sister. He didn't pick my child. And, you, and what you want to do is you want to go to God and you want to say, why not them? And, and I get that that's a thing. I get that that's a hard thing. I get that that's a painful thing. But can I just gently encourage you to every now and then just step back and, and not say, why not them, but say, why me? And be amazed that the Son of God came for you. Um, if you don't do that, you'll never be really amazed by Christmas. This time of year will never be that special to you. One more thing. She's also amazed by herself because of what she says in the second half of verse 48, for behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Now, this again is not in arrogance. This is in awe. Why is, why is she saying this in awe? Because she didn't get just chosen. She got chosen for a purpose, okay? 
She got chosen to be used by God for a purpose, for a reason, for a mission. The same thing we talked about just a couple of weeks ago. You see, every Christian is brought in to be sent out. Every follower of Jesus is called by God to be sent by God. But the amazing thing is, is that he does that. Like, I know, look, I, I have guys, I'm, I'm, I'm talking to guys, not all the time, but occasionally, guys who, who are thinking about becoming pastors. And I tell you, if they're serious about becoming a pastor, the number one obstacle to that is them saying, who the heck do I think I am that God would use me to do that? And the reason is, is because in true humility and honesty, they look at themselves and they say, I am, I'm not those guys. Although they always seem to forget Peter, right? Like, <laughs> Peter got called. Look at Peter. He's got to be the most impulsive foolish man ever, and yet he was used mightily and profoundly by God. You probably deal with that yourself because you know deep down in your soul you're not all that in a bag of chips. But you can be amazed because God in his grace and in his mercy, I, it, it still boggles my mind that he said, you know what, I'm going to save the world and I'm going to send the message of my salvation to the world through you guys. And it's going to work. You should be amazed by that. Be amazed by Christmas. Christmas.